A 7.6 magnitude earthquake shook Bataan Peninsula around 9.30 p.m. on April 8, 1942. But Army nurse Lieutenant Clara Bickford, a 25-year-old Texas beauty with dark curls, sparkling eyes, and a captivating smile, likely didn't notice the quake. She would have been preoccupied with the rumbling of the army truck she sat in and the constant explosions rattling Southern Baton. All around Nurse Bickford and the truck, civilians, refugees, soldiers, and other vehicles clogged the southbound roads, keeping the truck carrying her and other army nurses to a sloth-like pace. All of those people were braving movement on the open roads because the full darkness prevented enemy airplanes from attacking them. Suddenly, a deafening roar cut through the traffic and congestion noises as several huge explosions sent clouds, fire, and debris high into the air, transforming the night sky with an orange glow. The startled nurses exclaimed in surprise, their hearts jumping wildly. I think that's the ammunition dump, one of the girls said. They'll be destroying everything so nothing can fall into Japanese hands. Good, we don't need them using our weapons and ammunition against us, another nurse said. After a moment, Nurse Bickford realized something. We're not moving. It was true. Their truck was idling at a dead stop. The pedestrians and vehicles surrounding them were stopped as well. A soldier, coming the opposite way down the side of the road, called out, It's the ammunition dump! The explosion has stopped everything! Nothing's getting by here for hours! But what about us? A white-eyed nurse asked, looking around at her comrades with concern. How will we get to Marvellus? There's a boat waiting there to take us to Corregidor. What will happen if we don't get there for hours? The other nurses looked at each other, but no one spoke. They didn't have to. Each knew the consequence of missing that boat. They'd be stranded on Bataan, waiting to be taken prisoner by the Japanese army. Because behind them, the American lines had broken, and the Japanese army was swiftly approaching. In mere hours, the American commander on Bataan would surrender the peninsula to the Japanese. Bataan was falling, and the American nurses may not be able to get away in time. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. This is the 25th episode of Left Behind. So far, and including this episode, I've told the stories of 35 people who were left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines during World War II. And I think that's pretty remarkable. I'm also delighted to see how many people care about these POWs as much as I do and are listening to this podcast on a regular basis. So thank you so much for listening. Now, today's episode is the first of two episodes about last-minute escapes from Bataan mere hours before the peninsula fell to the Japanese. Thus, these individuals escaped 
being forced onto the Bataan Death March. Today's focus is on Army Nurse Lieutenant Clara Bickford and her fellow nurses who almost didn't make it off Bataan. Their story shows how the chance for escape could be just as dangerous and potentially perilous as remaining on Bataan. So let's jump in. Clara Mae Bickford grew up on a farm in rural Texas. She was born October 26, 1916, and raised in Tivoli, which is a small town near the Gulf Coast, about 65 miles or 100 kilometers northeast of Corpus Christi. She was the second youngest of at least nine children born to C.R. and Bertha Bickford. Father C.R. was born in Texas to parents from Maine and Kentucky, while Mother Bertha herself was an immigrant from Germany. I know almost nothing about Clara's childhood, but in 1937, when she was almost 21 years old, she graduated in nursing from Santa Rosa in San Antonio, Texas, which was about 130 miles or 210 kilometers from her hometown of Tivoli. Now, I'm not 100% certain what Santa Rosa refers to, but there is a Santa Rosa hospital in San Antonio that existed in the 1930s, so perhaps there was a nurse training program associated with it at some time. Several of the Bataan nurses I've researched were from rural communities, and they decided to go to school and work in big cities and then join the military to get away from those small towns and see more of the world. And this could have been part of Clara's motive for attending school in San Antonio. I had the opportunity to speak with Clara's niece, Sally Rathbun, who told me that Clara's parents allowed her to go to nursing school in San Antonio only because Clara had an older sister who already lived there. By April 1939, Clara had joined the Army Nurse Corps and was the second lieutenant stationed at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio. She remained there until June 1941 when the U.S. Army sent her to the Philippines. I don't know for certain what Clara did between arrival in the Philippines and the start of the war, but Lieutenant Bickford was probably living in Manila and assigned to the military hospital there. There's a family story that she had a fiancé in the Philippines prior to the war. He was, apparently, in the Air Corps and was able to leave the islands before it fell to Japan. According to the story, he was sent to Europe where he flew missions and, tragically, died. I haven't been able to corroborate this story with documents and historical records. Honestly, I just don't know enough information to begin looking for an Air Corps man who died in Europe during World War II. Sadly, there were a lot of men that fit this description. But this story is similar to Nurse Eunice Hatchett's husband, who left the Philippines a couple months before war broke out and served with the Air Corps in Europe. So Clara having a fiancé who left and went to Europe is a very plausible story. By the way, you can get all the details of Nurse Hatchett's World War II story in episode 15. Anyway, Nurse Bickford was serving at Fort Sternberg in Manila when the war started in December 1941. Bicky, as Lieutenant Bickford's fellow nurses called her, and 18 other nurses sailed across Manila Bay to Southern Bataan during Christmas week, 1941. They were coming to establish Battlefield Hospital No. 2 ahead of the large troop withdrawal to the peninsula. As soon as the nurses set foot on land, Japanese aircraft attacked, 
forcing the women to hide in foxholes or lay flat on the ground until the raid was over. Only then did they notice that their ship, still carrying all their medical supplies, was sinking. It was an ominous start to what would be an unorthodox hospital experience. Soon trucks arrived to take the nurses, doctors, and other medical personnel to the hospital's yet-to-be-developed location. Bulldozers had cleared rocks and tree stumps from the site and cut roads leading into and out of the area. Above the clearings was the jungle canopy because Hospital 2 would be completely open air. The location had been specifically chosen because it was on level ground with thick canopy overhead to camouflage and offer the patient some protection from Japanese airplanes. Whatever shock the nurses felt as they arrived at the site was mirrored by the soldiers who were setting up cots and digging a latrine for them. The soldiers watched the women get out of the trucks in disbelief. What in the hell are we going to do with women here? One soldier remarked in mingled disgust and disbelief. Vicky recalled the men's grumbling and that the nurses, quote, really took it on the chin, close quote. Historian Elizabeth Norman, in her book, We Band of Angels, about the nurses on Bataan, wrote, The army had not prepared its nurses for war, provided no training in the field, weapon, or even in battlefield medicine. And during their first days on Bataan, they seemed out of place. That first night, after supper, the women found a cool creek in a secluded area and stripped down for a bath. The roiling water restored them, made them feel like glamour girls. Later, under the mango and acacia trees by the Rial River, they settled onto their cots and fell asleep to the shrieks of birds and the soft creak of bamboo. The next day, Bicky, the other nurses, the doctors, and additional medical staff got to work creating the hospital. The wards were a semi-organized sprawl of old iron beds and rickety cots under bamboo or acacia trees and numbered by small wooden signs. There were 17 total wards and each would soon hold 200 to 500 patients in beds on the jungle floor. Despite the initial reservations about women near the battlefield and their lack of adequate training, the nurses on Bataan took the challenge head on. Bicky and her fellow nurses worked in blackout conditions at night to avoid enemy fire. And they often found themselves wandering around at night with other nocturnal friends, like pigs, lizards, and even carabao water buffalo. One night, a nurse was smacked in the face by a snake swinging from an overhead branch. And that's when I would have run screaming from the hospital. Thankfully, the nurses were made from sterner stuff. The girls had to eat their mid-shift meals quickly because monkeys and rats would steal any unattended food. They scrounged together enough canvas to screen the nurses' quarters from the rest of the hospital. Ever ingenious, they used jungle vines for closet rods and put metal tins full of water under their bedposts to keep ants from climbing into bed with them. They also screened off a portion of the Rial River where they could bathe and be women without the eyes of men on them all the time. One tree even had a large root that created a natural water slide, which the nurses took advantage of during their downtime. But Hospital 2 was very close to the action. A hospital surgeon recalled, It is probably the first army hospital of such size located near installations that were constantly being bombed. When the enemy airships approached these installations, 
they almost invariably did so directly over the hospital. This was disconcerting for two reasons. One, it always drew fire from our anti-aircraft guns. Fragments of shells were constantly falling into the hospital area. 50 caliber bullets also fell in the hospital area. Two, we were never certain that an enemy bomb, by accident, might not fall in one of the wards. Thus, most of the wards had foxholes dug directly under patient beds, where the patients could escape enemy raids if needed. Well, those patients who were able to roll out of their beds anyway. During those long three months on Bataan, Bicky experienced the steadily worsening conditions as food, medical, and military supplies decreased and the service men and women became increasingly exhausted, hungry, and sick. Then, on April 4, 1942, Japanese forces, replenished with reinforcements and additional weapons, opened an all-out assault on Allied forces. The Japanese quickly broke through American defensive lines in the peninsula's middle. Bombers flew overhead, dropping payloads on various American military installations. Heavy artillery inflicted relentless bombing on the American and Filipino troops attempting to keep U.S. lines intact. But the Allied fighting force on Bataan was folding fast, and everyone knew that Bataan's fall was at hand. Surrender was imminent. By the way, I covered in detail the state of U.S. forces on Bataan and Japan's final Bataan offensive in episode 24. Four days after the initial Japanese attack, so on the evening of April 8, 1942, U.S. General Jonathan Wainwright ordered all the American nurses to evacuate Bataan and to go to the hospital on Corregidor Island. Corregidor, which the servicemen and women affectionately referred to as The Rock was an island fortress about two miles offshore of southern Bataan Peninsula. Now, to be clear, the army nurses were all women. The male doctors and medics, and patients, would remain on the peninsula to meet whatever fate would arrive. Many of the nurses were appalled by the evacuation order, feeling it went against their Nightingale Pledge to remain with their patients. Created in 1893, the Nightingale Pledge named in honor of Florence Nightingale, who is considered the founder of modern nursing, is taken by nurses upon entering the profession and is a statement of nursing ethics and principles, similar to the Hippocratic Oath. During World War II, the pledge stated, in part, quote, with loyalty, I will aid the physician in his work. And as a missioner of health, I will dedicate myself to devoted service for human welfare, close quote. So, it's easy to see why some nurses felt leaving their doctors and patients was a betrayal of this pledge. Some nurses, even high-ranking ones, considered disobeying Wainwright's orders, feeling that courage and ethics demanded they remain with their patients and the doctors and medics who they had served with, and face the enemy. One nurse later said, We knew what we had to do, take care of these guys, and we were willing to do anything we had to do to do it. But in the end, all the nurses complied. A nurse recalled, by the time we received the word, took off our gloves and gowns in the middle of operations and walked down there, most of the nurses were already gone. Walking out in the middle of an operation with hundreds lined up under the trees waiting for surgery was devastating to me. This I have to live with 
for the rest of my life. The departing nurses weren't supposed to talk to patients or tell them where they were going, but the patients, watching all the nurses hurry away, knew exactly what was happening. The nurses were being evacuated and the patients would remain behind in their hospital beds. The evacuation order came so quickly that the nurses had only 30 minutes at most to prepare for evacuation. They were told to bring only what they could carry. One nurse jumped into the evacuation truck wearing her curlers and another came with wet laundry and cigarettes in a pillowcase. Lieutenant Bickford and the other nurses left Hospital 2 in trucks, buses, and jeeps after dark and headed south to the Maravellas Harbor, where they were to board a barge to take them to Corregidor. Now, I don't know how many nurses left Hospital 2. One book says 88 nurses left Hospital 2, but that number seems quite high to me because there were 88 total American Army nurses on Bataan, split between the two battlefield hospitals. That high number may include Filipino nurses who were also being transferred to Corregidor. I just don't know. But I suspect there were around 40 American nurses in the group leaving hospital too. Progress towards Maravellas and the waiting barge to Corregidor was extremely slow. The women were seated in trucks and buses surrounded by refugees and retreating soldiers all on foot and by vehicles and more clogging the roads southward to Maravellas. Suddenly, an explosion ripped through the night air, lighting the road and refugees in an eerie orange glow. The Army Corps of Engineers had blown up a huge ammunition dump along the southbound road. The explosions and subsequent fires stopped traffic. Nothing on wheels can move southward for hours. One of the nurses recalled, It was a big mess. Some troops were retreating from the front lines, while others were marching in the opposite direction to face the enemy. They were worn out and exhausted. Vehicles were breaking down. The noise and the confusion, it was bedlam that night. Then one of the nurse carrying trucks broke down, forcing those nurses to walk. But the explosions and fires prevented them from going very far. A nurse sick with dysentery laid down next to the road, too ill to go further and not caring if she lived or died. Once in a while, I'd open my eyes and see the most beautiful fireworks going up through the trees, she recalled. After an entire night of travel, some of the Hospital 2 nurses reached Maravellas in the early morning hours. They ran to the dock, only to find it empty. A nurse ran up to a nearby officer. Hey, you! Where's the boat that the nurses are supposed to go over on? We're down here to take the boat over to Corregidor. Oh, it came and left, the officer responded. Well, what are we going to do? Looking over the group of bedraggled nurses, the officer said, Well, I can take you. And he took him over on a small craft. The last group of Hospital 2 nurses didn't reach the Maravellas dock until the sun started to rise, which meant the Japanese planes would soon return to look for targets on Maravellas Bay. The nurses were stranded on Bataan, and General Edward King was, at that very time, preparing for surrender negotiations with Japan. The women found shelter and huddled together, attracting the attention of nearby servicemen. 
They gave the nurses food that the Navy had left behind when they had evacuated to Corregidor earlier that night. The women, who likely hadn't eaten since the afternoon before, quote, ate like wolves, close quote, spearing canned peaches with the ends of their toothbrushes. The docks were silent, no boats in sight. The nurses were abandoned, left behind on Bataan, with nothing to do but wait for a boat, for Japanese aircraft to attack, to be captured by enemy forces. Meanwhile, across the channel separating Maravellas from Corregidor, military leaders knew the hospital two nurses had missed their barge and that the women were stranded at Maravellas. Historian Lewis Morton wrote, It was only through the vim, vigor, and swearing of General Funk that a motorboat was sent from Corregidor to carry them across the North Channel. Back at Maravellas, the nurses were bravely awaiting their fate. Historian Elizabeth Norman wrote, They walked to the beach and waited, waited quietly for the Japanese to march out of the jungle. Then someone heard the sound of a motorboat and they rushed to the water. Suddenly dive bombers appeared overhead and the boat quickly wheeled about, pulled away. But the skipper, undaunted, waited for the threat to pass and again tried to approach. Then the planes reappeared and the boat retreated. And this cycle went on for some time until the planes, possibly tired of this game, left for bigger targets. The motorboat pulled near the dock, laid down a small wooden gangplank, and the nurses scurried on board. The captain quickly reversed the engines, and the women finally turned towards Corregidor. But just then, a Japanese plane reappeared. The boat's captain zigzagged the motorboat through the two-mile channel to Corregidor Island. A bomb exploded near the boat, and the erupting water splashed all over the deck. The nurses slipped along the wet deck, grabbing onto each other and any other object for support as the zigzagging boat pitched them from side to side. Except for one nurse, who sat calmly, filing her nails. What's the matter with you? Another nurse shouted at her. The manicuring nurse shrugged and responded, Well, what can we do? She later recalled, There wasn't anything else to do, and I wasn't going to sit there and moan. Somehow, the boat survived the gauntlet and arrived unscathed at the Corregidor docks. The frazzled but grateful nurses disembarked and ran for Melinta Tunnel, where the island's hospital was located. Miraculously, Nurse Bicky and all the other Hospital 2 nurses had reached Corregidor. Now, I don't know for certain which group Lieutenant Bickford was part of, but suffice it to say, she would have had a challenging and hazardous journey to safety. Of the Hospital 2 nurses' arrival on Corregidor, General Wainwright later wrote, Never forget the American girls who fought on Bataan and later on Corregidor. Their names must always be hallowed when we speak of American heroes. The memory of their coming ashore on Corregidor that early morning of April 9th, dirty, disheveled, some of them wounded from the hospital bombings, and every last one of them with her chin up in the air, is a memory that can never be erased. Bicky worked in the Corregidor Hospital for the next month. That hospital was located in tunnels cut into Melinta Hill and offered more protection than did the open-air Hospital 2 on Bataan. While Hospital 2 relied on dense jungle canopies for protection and camouflage, on Corregidor, 
Hundreds of feet of rock and packed dirt separated Bicky and her patients from enemy bombs. And that protection was needed because the Kurgadar Island Fortress was under constant siege by Japanese forces, who had focused their attention and ammunition on the last U.S. stronghold near Manila. It was a horrendous month, with the hospital continually busy caring for casualties of the incessant bombing and shelling. One source states, Valenta Tunnel was so well built the hospital staff could continue to work during raids, interrupted only by the muffled thuds of bombs and shells landing above. But, like an old worn-out song on repeat, conditions on Corregidor quickly deteriorated as they had on Bataan, with food, ammunition, medical supplies, and other needs dwindling. The fighting men were hungry, exhausted, and sick. And when, on May 6, 1942, Japanese ground forces landed on Corregidor, the island's U.S. forces quickly surrendered. I'll go into details of the siege and surrender of Corregidor in future episodes. First Lieutenant Clara Bickford was now a prisoner of war, along with all the other Army and Navy nurses still on the island. As a side note, a handful of nurses were able to escape Corregidor on small seaplanes, and strangely, I found a San Antonio Light newspaper article informing readers that Bicky was one of the nurses who escaped from Corregidor in the last plane. Miss Bickford cabled her sister that she was safe in Australia. I have no idea where the newspaper got this information, because I know from official sources that Clara was captured when Corregidor fell. Her name appears on a handwritten note documenting the, quote, members of the Army Nurse Corps and civilian women who were in Malinta Tunnel when Corregidor fell, close quote. They created this document, one nurse said, because we wanted to leave a record in case we disappeared. I've posted an image of that note on Facebook. The link is in the show description. So why would the San Antonio newspaper report that Bicky had escaped? I'm not certain. Although I do wonder if the paper confused Clara Bickford with another nurse, such as Eunice Hatchett from episode 15, who was from a rural town near San Antonio and who did escape on one of the last planes out of Purgador. Lieutenant Bickford and the other captured nurses were treated better than the captured men. For the first three months, the women and the doctors remained at their hospital posts, caring for the wounded on both sides of enemy lines. In early July 1942, the hospital staff and patients were transported to Manila. Once there, the patients and doctors, all male, were taken to a hospital. The nurses, however, entered the Santo Tomas civilian internment camp located on the walled-in grounds of a university in Manila. Lieutenant Bickford would remain at this camp for more than two and a half years. For the first couple of years, life for the Santo Tomas prisoners wasn't too bad. They could order food from Manila or purchase it from Filipino vendors outside the prison walls. The sick could go to hospitals outside of camp. Government over the day-to-day running of the camp was largely in internee hands, For some details on the early days in camp, see episode 10 about a 21-year-old American civilian named Francis Long, who was imprisoned in Santo Tomas at the beginning of the war. In December 1943, so about 18 months after Bicky arrived there, the camp received a Red Cross package. It was the only Red Cross package ever to arrive at camp, as far as I'm understanding. The package contained tinned meats, 
It was the only meat the internees had for a year. Regarding food at Santo Tomas, Bicky recalled, We got a tin of mush for breakfast, rice at noon if we worked, and at 4 p.m. another plate of rice with gravy and vegetables. Some of us saved corned beef we took in with us for three years. When the American planes would come over in late 1944 and early 1945, we would celebrate by opening a can of corned beef. She made rag dolls in camp to keep her mind occupied and traded them for corned beef. She especially recalled the coffee in camp, which was made of rice. It tasted like mud, but we were glad to get it. Now, I'm not certain how coffee can be made from rice. It doesn't really make sense to me. Like, coffee is coffee, and without coffee, it's not coffee, right? But I digress. Clara's mother, Bertha Bickford, received her first letter from Clara in December 1943. Vicky told her mother that she was a POW in Manila and was getting along well. She requested that her mother not worry about her. Now, as a daughter, I understand that sentiment. As a mother, though, there's no way I wouldn't worry nonstop about my child in such a circumstance. Camp internees were required to bow to all Japanese soldiers. They even received lessons in bowing, feet together, hands at sides, bend from the waist. One of Bicky's fellow nurses recalled, We foxed them because the Jap privates had to return our bows. We would approach the Jap sentries in groups, and each of us would bow separately, instead of in unison, so that the Japs were kept busy returning each bow. Bicky and the other nurses organized medical care for the internees, who spanned all ages, newborn to elderly, and suffered from all various illnesses and ailments of life and of imprisonment. There were babies born in the camp, as well as deaths from natural and other causes. The lack of food towards the end of imprisonment led to increases of sickness, especially among the older internees. And at some point, military doctors were brought into camp, or at least had some association with the camp. One of those doctors was Livingston Pope Noel, who was a flight surgeon. More on him in a bit. Treatment of POWs at Santo Tomas worsened after the fall of Saipan in July 1944. Saipan is in the Pacific and part of the northern Mariana Islands, about 1,500 miles west of Manila. Beginning in the late 1910s, Saipan was a colony of Japan and an important and strategic location for them in the war. But after a bloody three-week battle, American forces captured the island in July 1944. Further, by the summer of 44, the tide of the Pacific War was turning against the Japanese. Allied forces reported win after win, and on June 12, 1944, three days after Saipan fell, President Roosevelt addressed the nation, saying, Today, we are on the offensive all over the world, bringing the attack to our enemies. In the Pacific, by relentless submarine and naval attacks, amphibious thrusts and ever-mounting air attacks, we have deprived the Japs of the power to check the momentum of our ever-growing and ever-advancing military forces. We have reduced the Jap shipping by more than three million tons. We have overcome their original advantage in the air. We have cut from a return to the homeland, cut off from that return, tens of thousands of beleaguered Japanese troops who now face starvation or ultimate surrender. And we have cut down their naval strength 
so that for many months they have avoided all risk of encounter with our naval forces. True, we still have a long way to go to Tokyo, but carrying out our original strategy of eliminating our European enemy first, and then turning all our strength to the Pacific, we can force the Japanese to unconditional surrender or to national suicide much more rapidly than has been thought possible. As Allied forces gained traction in the Pacific, and especially after Saipan fell, the Santo Tomas camp gates were locked. Food became limited to dried fish and rice, and when the rice ran out, it was substituted with cornmeal. Vicky and the internees felt that the changes were retaliation for Saipan's capture. The Japanese forced internees to surrender their money, which the Japanese deposited into the Bank of Manila, supposedly so it could earn interest. Vicky and the other internees could withdraw 50 pesos each per month for living expenses. It was woefully inadequate. A carton of cigarettes cost 75 pesos, and a handful of garlic cost the equivalent of $43 in 1944 money. By late 1944, American forces were reinvading the Philippines, inching ever closer to Manila and the camp where Bicky was imprisoned. Finally, on February 3, 1945, the soldiers reached Santo Tomas. Bicky recalled, We heard machine gun fire about 6 p.m. on February 3rd, and the sound of heavier guns farther away. The nearby fire was the Filipino guerrillas fighting the Jap guards. Then, a big tank rumbled up to the gate around 9 p.m. By that time, we were all inside the buildings. The Jap curfew was 7 p.m., but we were hanging out the windows in violation of the Jap rules. We didn't know whether it was an American or Jap tank, and there was an awful moment of uncertainty until we smelled that lovely American gasoline. We heard voices, but we couldn't tell at first whether they were American or Jap. Then someone in a tank called out, Are you Americans? Hell yes, we are! An internee shouted in response. At that, the American internees started singing, God Bless America. Then prisoners of other nationalities joined in. Clara said, All I wanted to do was get down and touch an American soldier. But everybody had the same idea, and when I got down, they were telling us all to get back for safety. You should have seen all those internees in their nightclothes. I never got close enough to be convinced that they were really American. First Lieutenant Clara Bickford arrived home for a three-week leave, a month later, on March 5, 1945. She landed at the San Antonio Municipal Airport at 2.40 p.m. Her widowed mother and siblings were there to welcome her. She was wearing a brand new uniform, complete with stockings, the first she'd worn in three years. And those stockings were uncomfortable to wear. Clara had gotten used to men's trousers and other scavenged clothing while imprisoned. She recalled that on her way home, someone gave us nurses our first perfume in three years. And at San Francisco, the quartermaster gave us all the clothes we'd ever dreamed. Bertha Bickford greeted her daughter with a kiss, which I put a picture of on Facebook. She was overjoyed to see the baby daughter who she hadn't seen in four years. But she was a bit worried about that baby daughter's emaciated appearance, to which Clara informed her mother, I've gained back 10 pounds since liberation. I've thanked God many times for coming back safe. As Clara described to the waiting reporters some of the living conditions at the internment camp, her mother promised 
on the spot that there would be no rice on the menu that night. Clara told reporters that after her leave, she wanted to go back to the Pacific and help our boys get this thing over. I want to fight on the winning side for a while. I haven't discovered where she was assigned when her leave was over, but I do know that during her leave, she attended several events held in her honor, including the biggest celebration her hometown of Tivoli had ever seen. The entire county was invited to the celebration, which included a barbecue at the Hasselfield Ranch and concluded with a dance at the Tivoli School. Clara was also a guest of honor with two other liberated nurses at an afternoon tea organized by the Graduate Nurses Association in San Antonio. One of those nurses, Bertha Dvorsky, had met a civilian internee at Santo Tomas and married him shortly after liberation. Clara joked that while a POW, she herself was too hungry to think about romance. Bertha Dvorsky must not have been as hungry as that was. But I find that to be an ironic statement since just a few weeks later, on April 21, 1945, Clara herself married a man she met while imprisoned at Santo Tomas. She and flight surgeon Livingston Pope Noel wed at the U.S. Army's Gardner General Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. Claire was 28, and Pope, as he was known, was four days shy of his 29th birthday. They had both been liberated from Santo Tomas about 10 weeks previous. I'm not certain what either of them were doing in the Army Hospital in Chicago. One possibility is that Pope was recuperating there after having been a prisoner of war. One newspaper reported that the couple was on their way to Washington, D.C., so perhaps being in Chicago had something to do with reassignment at their leave's end? I just don't know. Claire left the Army Nurses Corps shortly after the war's end, and she and Pope settled in Texas. By 1950, there were parents of three boys, ages three, two, and one. Which helps illustrate exactly why we call the post-war years the baby boom. Pope worked as a doctor of general medicine, and Clara appears to have been a homemaker. Sally Rathbun, who was Clara's niece through marriage, lived near Aunt Bicky as a child and even lived with her aunt the summer after graduating high school. Sally described Aunt Bicky as an outdoorsy woman who enjoyed golf and had a deep laugh. Pope served in the Korean War in the early 1950s, but tragically, Clara and Pope's time together was much too short. On March 29, 1964, just a month away from their 19th wedding anniversary, Pope was piloting an airplane in Veracruz, Mexico. The couple, I believe, was on vacation there. The plane he was flying crashed around 1.20 p.m., and Pope died of severe burns received in the crash. He would have turned 48 years old a few weeks later. I don't know if Clara was on board that plane when it crashed. Clara began working as a school nurse shortly after Pope's death. In 1967, she remarried and soon relocated to Greenwood, Mississippi, where she continued working as a school nurse. In May 1978, 62-year-old Clara May Bickford Noel Bilello died in Greenwood, Mississippi. Based on her obituary, her death seems to have been unexpected, but I haven't found details about her cause of death. In lieu of flowers, her family requested contributions to American ex-prisoners of war or the American Defenders of Bataan and Corregidor organizations. This heroic battling bell of Bataan was survived by three sons and a daughter. 
Today, she has at least four grandchildren and two great-grandchildren, as well as nieces, nephews, and other extended family who honor her service and sacrifice. Now, back in 1942, the nurses weren't the only ones escaping Bataan the night of April 8th to 9th. All U.S. Navy personnel and a portion of the Philippine Scouts 26th Cavalry were also ordered to Corregidor Island. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow Left Behind wherever you listen to podcasts. That way you'll get notifications when I drop new episodes. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Clara Bickford's story on the Left Behind Facebook page and website. The links are in the show description. If you'd like to know more about the nurses serving on Bataan, I suggest the book We Band of Angels by Elizabeth Norman. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Tyler Harmon. Special thanks to Sally Rathbun for her help and information regarding Clara Bickford. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And I'll be back next time with the unthinkable sinking of the last U.S. ship remaining in the Philippines. (laughs) ¶¶